All right, Father, in the name of Jesus, uh, we open our hearts to receive your word, quick and powerful and sharp. Lord, that helps us understand the difference between that old life that we lived and this new life that's in us. Father, I pray that you would just bring it, bring it to life in us. And Lord, we speak anointing and blessing and encouragement and strength uh, to Matt. God, that uh, the words of his mouth, God would honor you tonight in a unique and special way. Hallelujah. And everybody say amen. All right. That sounds like it's on. Good. Well, I got to say how much I appreciate Billy um, and how much I clearly have to learn about writing sermons. We went over this morning, and a bunch, I joined his group of men that do breakfast together on uh, Saturday mornings. And he, was, he had not remembered what I was going to teach out of today. So he was asking what I was doing. I told him. He kind of had this somewhat surprised look on his face of chapter 4. And what was going through my mind was, yeah, I didn't really have a lot from chapter 4. It's kind of just some generic closing statements and like a bunch of random people in there. And that's what I read when I read chapter 4. And then Billy opens it up and just pulls every bit of a relationship out of there and just highlights how Paul is so deeply connected with all these people. And at the end of him, just kind of in three seconds unpackaging the relational significance of chapter 4, my first thought was, well, I am not ready to be a pastor, that's for sure. I did not see any of that. All I saw was just a bunch of names anyway. So I appreciate, Billy, uh, that you are first and foremost someone who understands relationship and can find that in the Word. So thank you for that. Um, I also am just thankful to be before you guys tonight. Uh, we serve an amazing God, and every week when I come here, I receive something from you guys. And a testimony of that this week is, I'm getting ready to come up here just a couple hours ago, and some of you may not know this, but public speaking is actually not my comfort zone. I get to do it a decent amount for my job and some other things like that, but it's never been something that I would gravitate to for pleasure. And so I'm kind of in that place in my head, and I get a call from Brent Henderson. He's driving back from an elk hunt in Colorado. They're in St. Louis, him and his son, Jake, our worship leader. And he says, hey, I know you always tell me that when I'm in the crowd, you look for me, and you see that hand up there, and it just gives you strength and power. And I want you to know I'm praying for you, son. And so Jake is on the way back with his dad right now, and they're watching apparently a YouTube live cast of this, which I didn't even know we were still doing post-COVID. And apparently I can, sen I can sense him there giving me the amen. So Brent, thank you. This is for you. <laughs> uh, shoot. But let's get into it. So as Billy already said, I am not going to take us through a specific chapter. In fact, the bulk of my time tonight will be spent going back through the four awesome teachings of Colossians that we've already had. So this is our final week. We're going to bring it all together. We're going to go over the highlights. And then at the end, I'm going to take it and apply it over what Billy already talked about, which is the word to the church this year, which is returning to our first love. And man, looking out, I now understand something Billy always talks about. Everyone is so far away. There's just like this giant dead space between me and everybody. But anyways. All right, so coming back, the first week was Billy's introduction. So predominantly out of chapter one, but Christ in you, the missing ingredient. So he starts off chapter one, verse 24, of course. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Billy identified this as a doctrinal truth that has not received its due place in contemporary Christian thought. Paul saw this, as a, uh, this truth as key to Christian maturity. 
Billy talked about the the analogy of bread with and without leaven. So Christ is that missing ingredient that if you take it out, the Christian life does not rise up to what it's meant to be. It's like bread without a leavening agent, bread without yeast. It just is flat. It's hard. There's nothing enjoyable about it. It's at best, as he talked about, hard tack, maybe something that you can survive on, but there's no life in it. All right, so Christ in you, it is the effective measure of God that empowers the Christian life, and it needs to become a part of our daily meditation in our hearts, in our relationship with Christ. We should wake up daily thinking about Christ is in me, and this is the hope of our glory. So we have fallen short of the glory of God we know. And so this is the hope that we can return to that glory. That glory, Billy talked about, can be looked at at least in two ways. The first, and obviously, salvation. So the hope of resurrection, the hope of returning back into eternal life on the other side of this life. But, perhaps more applicable right now, it's the glory as in we are meant to walk in perfect love. And it's a failure uh, Sorry, we are meant to walk in perfect love. Failure to that call is a failure to honor God in the earth. And so we return to glory in God when we return to that perfect love. This is different from an external faith. So this is not being touched by God. This is not following after God. This is God lives inside me. Christ himself promised that he would put the Holy Spirit inside us. In fact, he commanded his disciples to tarry until they had received power from on high, until that spirit came down and lived inside of them that would empower them to the life that they were called to. Galatians 2.20, it's Christ that liveth in me and the life I now live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And Billy pulled out that that word of, the face of the Son of God, that word of is not actually there. It's kind of an insert. And you can kind of take that sentence there by faith of the Son of God in a couple ways. One of the ways is that it is actually the faith of the Son of God. It's the faith of Christ, the Son who lived a perfect life of faith that's now inside of you and it manifests itself through you. This empowers us to live the perfect life of faith or glory to the Father. You are a new creation. Faith in the Son of God causes you to be born again, a new creature with a new internal operative power, Christ in you. It is no longer circumcision, acts of the law, or even love that perfects us. It is the fact that you are a new creature in Christ. The new man is created after righteousness and holiness. That is his natural function that you will be restored to. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. It was Paul's desire to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And Paul believed that it was this teaching, Christ in you, that can cause this to happen. Paul says uh, that his sermon is being preached by the Spirit of Christ, working mightily in him for the Colossians. Paul sees this Christian life as a life of growth, a growing manifestation of the Spirit of God, cultivated through prayer, the Word, and time with God. Paul teaches these men, but then prays that this one truth might capture them, that the power of God is in them, the Spirit of God that might cause them to rise up like that bread. 
Ilya's final applications. Do you live, do I live as though God is far off and I'm striving through religious effort to bring him near to me? Or do I realize that the living God came and made his home inside of me and I can wake up every day and he is right there? It is the experiential presence of God flowing out of us for one another, not head knowledge, that builds the church and glorifies Christ in the earth. Do I honestly believe that Christ is in me each day, dying to reach out to the people around me? If you let Christ live big inside of you, you will see opportunities to reach out and let Christ touch people around you. And that is the conclusion of the intro. Week two, we had Matt going over chapter one and his sermon on the preeminence of Christ. So he focused on chapter one, verses 15 through 20, the Christ hymn. And he opened with what I thought was an amazing and original question, perhaps not one I've heard from the pulpit before. Who is the goat? Who is the greatest of all time? Thank you, Matt. He said, uh, Matt surprised me by saying, this is not just a uh, contemporary sports question. Uh, Christian, or sorry, not Christians, but uh, Christ contemporaries would have asked, who is the greatest God? Who is the most powerful, the most capable? Who is worthy of being praised? Well, like the ultimate ESPN commenter, Paul writes to put this end to a debate. The Christ hymn is Paul writing, Jesus, the goat. So 10 attributes that Paul, or that uh, Paul, that Matt pulled out of Paul's section here. So number one, Christ is the image of God. So people made endless images of God in this time and culture. The Jews, on the other hand, were explicitly forbidden from crafting images of God. Well, Jesus came and he was the image of the invisible power that all cultures have acknowledged and known as present, but unseeable. Point two, he is the firstborn of creation. Not created, but occupying the place of a firstborn. The firstborn of the Father in heaven with all preeminence. Point three, he's the creator of all things. Forgetting this truth leads us to cosmic plagiarism. We don't create anything. We rearrange things, we manipulate things, and all that we do in this is out of his creation. Four, him through whom all things were created. He is the object of all of their function and all things exist to make Christ known. Five, he was before all things. He is uncreated, co-eternal, a member of the Godhead. Six, he holds all things together. He answers the age-old question, even then they were saying, what keeps the universe from just dissipating? Why do things stick together? This omnipresent cohesion from God also destroys all arguments of independence from him. Seven, he's the head of the body, the church, the body that will reign with him for all eternity. Eight, he's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. Nine, he is fully God. And 10, he is our reconciliation. Matt's application for this was, have you found complete surrender? Have you come to the feet of this image and surrendered yourself utterly? 
Is your hope and joy and purpose in Christ? Do you find your security in him? Is he your delight? And do you have certainty in your identity in him? And then finally, worship. Do you spend your life declaring his worth and praise? Does he hold the proper place in your heart? And Victor, the next week, came and brought us chapter two, the, sufficient, or the sufficiency of Christ. Victor really said that he wanted, and I appreciate that he wanted to show us the heart of Paul. So it was a heart that struggled and strove mightily for a church that was under attack from pagan mysticism and a reassertion of Torah law. Importantly, this was a church that we believe Paul had never visited. This is his heart for a body that he has no personal connection with. This desire of Paul's heart for which he struggled mightily on behalf of the Colossians was that they would understand God's mystery, which is Christ, in the midst of that confusion. Paul reminded the church at Colossae that it's beginning, or it's beginning in Christ. Beginnings are special. They're often accompanied with special purity, freshness of desire. It's that pure desire of being with and in Christ that should characterize the Christian walk. It shouldn't be a transient experience, but a continued pursuit. And Satan wants to complicate this relationship. He wants to create a culture of believing that there is a secret or deep knowledge required to truly know God. It's not enough that you met him in salvation. You need to, you need to know him and seek after these deeper things if you really want to be with God. Some of these things that were being brought to them were new moons, Sabbaths, festivals, asceticism. Paul is defending the Colossians by drawing them back to his gospel and the sufficiency of knowing God. He said, don't return to shadows of Christ. He said, all of these things are shadows. They were all things casting forward to the coming fulfillment that was in Christ. Christ is the resurrected Lord and the fulfillment of all of these things. He said, Christ is the head. It is the source of the life of the church. Turning away from Christ to other things of knowledge is not life-giving, it is life-taking. These things are not Christ. In them is no power for putting to death the things of the flesh. And Victor talked about how the temptation of the flesh is to always inject itself into things where it can. It wants to work its way up to something. It's hard for the flesh to accept that there's nothing it can do of itself. This can be especially applicable, Victor talked about, with those who are brought up in the culture of the kingdom, in the culture of a house where people have been following God. You can have knowledge of the right thing to do, and that can pull you from seeking Christ and relying on him. It can, in fact, even immunize us from the feeling of the need of the head. He talked about how there is no metric for, the prog for progress in Christ. No uh, convenient application for tracking our journey. We talked about this this morning, that there is no MyFitnessPal uh, for what it means to be progressing in Christ, to which I was shortly corrected when Tyler Thompson pulled out a phone with an application that tracks all the things you do to grow up in Christ. <laughs> so I was wrong. Apparently there is a phone application for that. But what Victor is getting at here is you do not have within you the capacity to look into your own life at external activities and say, this is what it means to grow up. I can look at my own life and say, oh yeah, I'm not 
doing these things I used to do. I am spending this many minutes in prayer, this many minutes in the Word, and next week I get a few more minutes, and the next week I do a few less things. And that is my evidence of an upward trajectory in Christ. Well, that, divorced from seeking after the head, is no metric whatsoever of growth. In fact, it is probably divorcing you from Christ. As you rely on yourself and your own earthly efforts, and you take your eyes off of the life-giving head of the body. All right. So he said that Christ, as his own end, as a sole motivation, is the only correct orientation of the heart, not a desire for some sort of upward personal trajectory. So do we forsake effort then? Delete the application, Tyler, I'm sorry. No effort, God forbid. Chapter 1, verse 29, Paul specifically shares the extreme toil and energy that he expends on behalf of the Colossians. But he's very explicit to say in the midst of that statement that he is struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul was in touch with the living power of Christ in him, and it was out of that energy and that life that this struggle was occurring. So Victor's application, don't just do what everyone else is doing. The greatest revelation is not our identity, but it is Christ, and he is sufficient in every situation. Don't figure out what everybody else is doing. Don't download the application and find the 10-step program. You need to plug into Christ. He is sufficient. We are not immune to the enemy's attempts to sabotage that sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. He is going to want to insert knowledge, fleshly effort. He's going to want to do anything he can so that you will start measuring things based on your own effort and not on your daily, uh, your daily communion with the Lord. Let us not be afraid to work. And Christ has triumphed over all power and authorities, and he is enough to overcome all things. He is sufficient. And Victor left us with a final image that I appreciated that really cast down any thoughts of, I am going to build my way to heaven. He finished with the image of the thief hung next to Christ, who was accepted in his dying day purely on his belief and cry to Christ that he be accepted, and not any single good thing that he had done. All right. Week four, Dan in chapter 3 brought us living in community. So chapter 3, he focused in on verses 1 through 17. He talked about how chapter 3 focuses on Christ in us and the effects of that in the church as a community. Paul reopens the chapter by centering us back on that truth that Christ is in you and that is your hope of glory. Glory is manifested as a people put off sin, the sin-centered ways of a dying kingdom. Verse 5, the things on this list, uh, he lists the things that are disordered. He says, the fruit of a community life lived apart from God and in conformity to the world. Sexual disorder, desires that are trained towards the forbidden, living for our desires in rebellion to God's order, slander, malice, lies. All of these are relational decay and destruction for society, leading to ultimate disunity. It is crucial that we remember that this was our habits before deliverance from Christ. 
For each and every one of us before Christ came and called us to himself, this was our habits. This is the way that we walked. Well, Paul entreats us to put these things to death. Root them out completely. Verse 10, put on the new self instead, powered by Christ, not the fleshly self, and enter a new kingdom of eternal life. Within that kingdom, in order that we might live that life, we must have that or the correct identity. We are chosen, loved, and consecrated children of God. We must come with the right posture in the midst of this community when we want to approach others with correction. We must come as forgiven and humble servants who remember where we came from and who it is inside of us that brings this about. We must bear with one another. We must forgive one another. This community is held together by agape love, brotherly love. 1 Corinthians 13, we know that we need to put on love above all else. Love exceeds all wisdom and demonstrations of power. No other gifts function properly outside of love. The community of the church is also a place of peace. When the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, it allows us to have peace with one another. Christ works in individuals, you and me, to minister to his body. In Christ, we encourage, we admonish. Christ in us makes known his will for our lives to one another. Christ is meant to be experienced not solely on an individual level, but we are meant to communally partake in the word and worship. Do all things in the name of Christ with thanks to the Father. Christ is the source and reason for all we do, and Christ's actions towards us are the genesis and effective means of his bodies, the church, reciprocal love. To do all this, we must put on the love of God, which is Christ. And how do we put on that love? Spending time with God in prayer and the word, by living in obedience to his commandments, by living in relationship with the community of Christ, a specific church, that he has placed you in intentionally. And in application, Dan said, this section of scripture is full of hope. And he called us to believe that we can truly forgive one another, bear with one another. We can live this life as a body if we put on Christ. And Dan emphasized that we can, as Paul says, we can have perfect harmony. Verse 14 says that in Christ. Not decent harmony, we can be the city set on the hill that glorifies God. And finally, Dan left us with an image from Revelations 7:19 that we look forward to the day when we will together in perfect community enter into an eternal worship of the resurrected and enthroned Lord. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed those four weeks. It was really good for me, um, but I wanted to take a little bit out of each one of those with the last minutes of this and bring it back to what we heard coming out of the fast, which was that we need to return to our first love. And Billy has already stolen me, reminding you guys what that was. It is, at its core, a return to Christ, to knowing Christ and being known. It also might uniquely for this body be the love of Christ, true Christian community, to live with one another in sincere hope of this life. So, to pull something from each one of those weeks. The first from Matt, that Christ is the goat. I appreciate that, Matt. Christ is the goat. 
If we need to hear that call to return to our first love, that means we have taken our eyes off of our first love and we're looking somewhere else. Well, we idolize what occupies a position of greatness. You may not know this or not, but when you think some of these things that you care about, you know who and what is great at those, and you have your eyes fixed on them. There's a lot of basketball lovers in here. I'm not even going to pretend to know who is the current GOAT, but I'll bet everybody here knows who is the GOAT. They know Michael Jordan. They know LeBron James. That's probably controversial. I don't know. But you know who those people are, and you track them, and you know their stats, and your eyes are fixed on them because you know that they are the greatest. Well, what idol currently occupies the position of Christ that has moved you away from him? What have you taken your eyes off to instead that you now recognize? We all gravitate to the feet of what we believe is the greatest. So if we find that we have taken our eyes off of him, what do we do? Well, we need to return to stare into the face of Christ. That is what captured us, and that is what is going to return you to that love. You need to return and see the 10 things that Matt pulled out that are so worthy and amazing and awesome about our God. He is amazing and worthy to be praised, and you don't have to work yourself up to that. You just need to get before him and see who he is, and he will capture you and draw you back in. All right. Pulling out of Victor's Week. Has the temptation of the flesh to achieve by fleshly efforts supplanted the sufficiency of Christ in your life? Satan wants to complicate this relationship. He wants to make in this church, in your life, a culture of believing that there is a secret or deep knowledge or something that you need to know before you can really get in relationship to God. When you feel that separate, when you feel that distance from God, Satan does not want you to just cry out and come to him with simple faith, believing that he is inside of you because that is what his word has said. He is going to want you to believe that you need to dig in, learn something new, do something new, put in a new effort in order to achieve this. Victor said, run away from that. There is nothing you can do in your fleshly effort to attain this. You need to come back to the simple sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross and his promise that he would put himself in you by the Spirit. There's a sweetness and newness that should continue in life, he said, and we should seek after that. It's that pure desire of being with and in Christ that should call us back to first beginnings. Out of Dan, put on Christ. Spending time with God in prayer and the word by living in obedience to his commandments. It is that simple. That is what it means to spend time with God. The word, prayer, and living in obedience to his commandments. And finally and preeminently, Christ is in you. It is the experiential presence of God flowing out of us for one another, not head knowledge that builds the church up and glorifies Christ in you. That is what I've got. I hope you guys have loved Colossians. I am very thankful for the guys that I got to spend a few weeks with here. I'm thankful for Billy giving me the opportunity to come over this morning. And now I am thankful for the opportunity to worship with you guys tonight. We live an awesome, risen Lord that has made his life inside of us.